You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right. Well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. We could say that here, right? Merry Christmas. If you've got a Bible, go to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. We're looking at the first two chapters of the book of Luke, and we're looking at the birth of Jesus in the most curious season of the year. This is the season of the year when more concepts and people and places from the Bible sort of find their way into mainstream culture than any other time of the year. You go to the store, you might hear a little Christmas song that mentions Jesus or Mary or Joseph or Bethlehem or a star. You go into a store and you might see a display. And what's interesting is how the story is told and who is included and who is omitted. And so I was thinking about it, even sitting there worshiping with you and, you know, the wise men, they they get a little airtime this time of year. And of course, Uh, Jesus is the star of the show and there's his mother Mary and his father Joseph and uh, the shepherds get a little airtime as well. You know who gets omitted from the story culturally is this couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth. Um, They actually are front and center in the Bible's telling of the story, but they're omitted. We don't hear Christmas songs about them. You watch the television specials. There's really nothing about Zachariah and Elizabeth. You go to the store to buy a nativity scene or some lawn decorations, and you can't get any, you know, Zachariah action figure or, you know, pregnant Elizabeth uh, figurine. This doesn't happen. But the way the Bible tells the story, it's really the story of, of, of two couples Elizabeth and Zechariah are older. Mary and Joseph are younger. Elizabeth and Zechariah are married. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. They're engaged to be married. The older couple, well, they've been having a normal relationship. The younger couple, they're still virgins, saving themselves for marriage. And they're related somehow because Mary and Elizabeth are, are related which means that their two sons, John the baptizer and Jesus, are basically cousins and that they are born within about six months of one another. And the way that Luke tells the story is that the angel Gabriel went to Elizabeth and told her, though you're barren and elderly and beyond childbearing years, you're going to give birth to a son named John. And he then visited um, Joseph and he visited Mary and revealed to them and you're going to have a son through a miracle of the Holy Spirit and his name will be Jesus and they are basically cousins growing up doing life and ultimately ministry together and so what we're looking at today is the birth of John the baptizer I don't call him the Baptist because there wasn't a denomination he's John the baptizer and his birth and how that prepares people for the coming of the Lord Jesus and so we'll start by learning what happens when God shows up in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth. I love Elizabeth. She's an older woman, a godly woman. She's a devout woman. Her husband's basically a pastor. They're in a small rural town with a, a very simple, humble life and ministry. 
She wanted to have a baby. That longing was unsatisfied. She's beyond childbearing years. She sort of released and surrendered that hope to God, thinking that it'll never be satisfied and fulfilled. She didn't rebel against God. She didn't get bitter against God. She didn't raise her fist or voice or finger toward the Lord. Instead, she just humbly served the Lord and waited. And God heard and answered her prayer and gave her a baby. And Elizabeth is wonderful. She's just wonderful. I just like her a lot. And it's so great to see that longing satisfied and fulfilled. And so the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. It's interesting in our world, when bad things happen, we call them acts of God. So God kind of only gets credit for the things that we're not very happy about. What they do here, they give God credit for the good things. A baby is born, prayer is answered. Uh, God has been merciful, we'll rejoice in his provision. And on the eighth day, it came, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zachariah after his father, Uh, But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. John means God is gracious. And it was the angel Gabriel who told him, you're supposed to call him John. And it would have been pretty common if you're only going to have one kid, right, that you name him after dad and they carry on the family name and legacy. But God had a specific and unique destiny for John. And so through the angel Gabriel, he was to be named John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. The story continues. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. Now, this may seem weird. Why is, why is Zechariah writing? Why is he not speaking? It's because when he first heard that he was going to become a father, he, he really disbelieved God. He really basically in his own way told God, you're not going to do that. God said, I'm going to give you a baby. He's like, no, you're not. He, he didn't trust God. He didn't believe God. And so what God said was, well, we don't need to talk about it. We don't need to talk about it. You just wait and see what I do. And this is the point. There are things that only God can do, and we don't need to talk about it. We just need to wait until he does it. And to make sure that Zechariah didn't talk about it anymore, he made him mute. You can read this just a couple pages earlier. He made him mute for, for nine months. And so Elizabeth is doubly blessed, right? She's pregnant with a mute husband, right? Grace and I were talking about, she's like, that really is a twofold blessing. That's a double blessing right there. So she's pregnant with a mute husband. It's a great season for Elizabeth. So Zachariah is unable to speak. So he gets a tablet to write, no, his name is to be John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed. And he spoke blessing God. You need to know this is why God gave us a tongue. This is why God made the tongue so that we could bless him, so that we could praise him, that we could thank him, that we could honor him, that we could speak of who he is and say what he would have us to say. And Zechariah was speaking against the Lord. He loved the Lord and he was a godly man, but he was struggling with his faith in that moment. We all have those moments. And so God basically said, don't say anything until I do everything and then you can be rejoicing. Sometimes we just need to be quiet and wait for the Lord to do his thing and then praise him for what he's done. And that's what happens. The tongue was made to bless God. And fear came on all the neighbors. They they understood this is a holy moment. This is a sacred thing. God is doing something very unusual through this family and the birth of this son. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And, And this is a rural town out in the middle of nowhere, right? Nobody comes from here. Nothing really happens there. And God shows up and this older pastoral ministry couple is now 
pregnant and then the son is born. He's the son of the promise and he's supposed to be a prophet. And, and there's this wondering, this rumbling, like who is this son and, and what will his life be? And what's the destiny that God has for him? And they laid them up in their hearts saying, what will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was on him. This is the Bible's language for anointing. The Holy Spirit has chosen to work in and through this boy, child, John, in a unique and historic way. That the hand of the Lord was on him. So as Elizabeth and Zechariah are holding their baby and, you know, washing their baby and feeding their baby and changing their baby, God's also got his proverbial hand on the boy helping to raise him. Let me say this. Every child that grows up to know, love, and serve the Lord also needs not only the hand of the parents involved, but the hand of the Lord involved as well. The parenting is a partnership ultimately with God. Say, well, we're going to love and raise this child, and we're going to invite God to do the same with us. And together, Elizabeth, Zechariah, with the Lord's help, they raise John. Now, what I want you to see is when God shows up, people are blessed. And what this is, this is the beginning of the unveiling of the kingdom of God. And what happens is they're preparing for the coming of King Jesus and the kingdom of God. And John's calling in life ministry is to be the one who is preparing for the coming of the king. And so what happens around his birth is the unveiling, the dawning of the kingdom of God. And you start to see how the kingdom of God works when it unveils itself on the earth. First for Elizabeth, she goes from being barren to having a baby. She's blessed and the longings of her heart are satisfied and she's filled with joy. In addition, for Zechariah, he went from doubting to blessing God. He went from struggling to believe the word of God to rejoicing in the fulfillment of the word of God. In addition, those women, neighbors who knew Elizabeth, they have transitioned from reproach to rejoicing. We just read that they were rejoicing. Previously in the book, she says that they had been heaping upon her reproach. This is shame, condemnation, accusations. This is character assassination. She was a very godly woman, but some of the women had started a false rumor that she was ungodly. And, and what, what happens is they were being religious. And what religious people do, they'll take something that is partially true and then use it in such a way that it becomes untrue. And so they would have ascertained something like this. Children are a blessing. We have children, God has blessed us. Elizabeth doesn't have a child, God hasn't blessed her. I wonder why God didn't bless her. Must be that there's secret sin in her life. There's, there's hidden sin we don't know about, but the Lord has known about, and, and that that sin has hindered God's blessing from flowing on her. It's like God wants to bless us, but maybe her sin is like an umbrella. And as a result, God's blessing doesn't shower down upon her because there is sin in her life. So she had reproach, she had shame, she had condemnation, she had a bad reputation. But these women went from reproach to rejoicing. Oh, she is a godly woman, and it was not an issue of God withholding his blessing, it was God waiting for his perfect timing. And so they moved from reproach to rejoicing. And then there is John, the boy who was born, and he is altogether blessed because he has godly parents and he has the hand of God involved in his life, helping to raise him and direct him. 
Here's what I want you to see. When, when God shows up and the kingdom of God is present, all of God's people are blessed. I like to say it this way. God's will is holistic, meaning God is a father who doesn't play favorites with his children. He loves and serves them all. I've got five kids, and one of the worst things a parent can do is, I love this one, not that one. I bless this one, not that one. I have hope for this one, not for that one. I favor this one, not that one. God is a father who loves all of his children. God is a father who blesses all of his children. God is a father who cares for all of his children. And what we see here is that all of the people of God are blessed. The people in town are blessed. Zechariah is blessed. Elizabeth's blessed. John is blessed. Everybody's blessed. God's will is holistic. And this is how we know that the kingdom of God is at work when it's not a win-lose, but it's a win for you. It's a win for me and it's a win for him. And everybody's blessed and living under the provision of God's grace. Now we don't live in a world like that. Amen. We just don't. But the kingdom of God operates like that, where it is win for you, win for me, win for us, win for them, win for him. It is blessing and provision for all. And so that's what happens when God shows up. Everybody's life gets a little bit better and there is hope. Number two, we learn what happens when God speaks. Um, Luke 1, 67 through 79, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a theme that happens a lot in Luke. So it says that uh, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit earlier in the book, that when she and Mary came together, John, the Holy, the Holy Spirit filled John the baptizer from his mother's womb and he leapt in the presence of Jesus. It tells us here that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. If you keep reading Luke, you'll find that the Lord Jesus Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Luke talks a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the life of Jesus. He was baptized in the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He rejoiced in the Spirit. And Luke actually writes two books. He writes Luke and he writes Acts. It's a prequel and a sequel about the life of Jesus and the life of Jesus' people. And then in Acts, it continues. So the Holy Spirit fills God's people to continue the ministry and mission and the message of Jesus. And so it's a big theme for Luke and it's a massive theme for us that we are to have the Holy Spirit. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here we see that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit this godly pastor, and he prophesied. So he's going to speak. He's going to speak. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. When you hear this language of a horn and of David, think of a king and a kingdom. That's what this nomenclature and language is to awaken in our imagination. It is king because David was anointed king and then he eventually took the throne and he was appointed king and then he set up a kingdom where God's kingdom was among God's people and so the kingdom of heaven started to be unveiled here among the kingdoms of the earth and all of this is about a king and a kingdom Uh, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old and he's saying you know God has been telling us For a long time through the authors of the Old Testament and the spokespersons for God that that a king was coming, the Lord Jesus, that he was bringing with him a kingdom that would never end. And so there was this eager anticipation, this hunger, this yearning, this longing. Where is this king? Where is this kingdom? And Zechariah is prophesying that the time is near, that we're on the threshold of that dawning of this era of human history. And he goes on to talk a little bit about this kingdom, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us, those who oppress us and harass us and attack us and threaten us. 
to show mercy, he promised to our fathers. God is a God of mercy. He knows we're fallen. He knows we're frail. He knows, he knows our faults. And he's merciful with us and he's loving with us and he's compassionate with us and he's patient with us. He's there to help us, not to harm us. The mercy he promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This is the language of relationship. That ultimately God has promised that he would be our God and that we would be his people. That he would be with us and he would be for us and that we would belong to him and that we should follow him. That the oath he swore to our father Abraham, this goes all the way back in history, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days, all of this kingdom language. Next slide. And you child. So Zechariah unveils in his prophecy, here's the king in the kingdom. And son, here's your part to play. Everyone needs to know their part to play. Everyone needs to know about the king in the kingdom and what's my part to play. What's my part to play? So he's going to prophesy, John, here's your part to play in this kingdom. And you, child, will be called the prophet. How many of you wish, you said, that'd be amazing to have a kid who was a prophet. It would be a painful honor. It's a great honor to raise a prophet, but it's a painful honor. What happens to the prophets? Are they loved or hated? Hated. Are they welcomed or rejected? Rejected. See, priests, they come up from the institutions and they play by the rules and they go through the rituals. The prophets, they live out on the margins. They don't play by the rules because they didn't know there were rules. The prophet walks out of the woods and says, I'm just going to tell you what God said. And the people then sometimes don't like what God has said because what God is telling them to do is to repent that they need a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of life, a change of lordship. And as a result, they reject that. And so they reject the prophet because he's the messenger. Now he doesn't write the mail, he just delivers the mail. But if you don't want to read the mail, you get rid of the mailman. And that's what they do. They get rid of God's prophets. So to be a prophet means that you're rejected, you're hated, you're despised. And ultimately you don't live a very long life. They put you to death. How many of you, this would be a real difficult thing as a parent. We've waited so many years to have a baby. A miracle has happened. We got a baby and he's a boy. Yay, and he's going to be a prophet. Ah, no need to go out and buy stuff for grandkids. He's not going to live that long. The primary job of parenting is to raise children to serve the Lord, whatever his calling on their life might be. That's the first and primary goal. And they accept this calling to raise this son to be a prophet, knowing what happens to the prophets. These are Bible people. This is a ministry family. This is a couple that that leads a local ministry. They, They know what happens to the prophets. You'll be a prophet of the Most High. This is an interesting statement. He's talking about the Lord Jesus, who's yet to be born. And what he's saying as a godly pastor is that Jesus Christ is the Most High God. There may be governmental rulers, there may be supernatural, demonic, and angelic rulers, but above them all is the Most High. He's the Lord. He's the one in ultimate authority who rules and reigns over all. Some of you have been told wrongly that, that this idea that Jesus is God is not something that the Bible teaches, but it was myth, legend, fable, and folklore that was added to the Bible over the course of time. That's not true. Earlier, we read that when Elizabeth came into the presence of Mary, she talked about my Lord being in Mary's womb. 
She said, how, how, how am I so blessed to be in the presence of my Lord? She knew that the unborn baby Jesus was her creator and Lord. And I know this is complicated. You're like, my mind exploded. Welcome to the Bible. Right? Welcome to the Bible. Okay? It's all true, but it's, it's sometimes, as Paul says, hard to understand. But there was revelation and Holy Spirit insight to Elizabeth that she knew that even the unborn baby Jesus was her Lord. And here, Zechariah, her husband, says that Jesus, he's Jesus' uncle. How many of you have nieces and nephews? How many of you would be hard-pressed to see them as God? Right? I mean, this is, this is a family where this godly older pastor who's devoted his whole life to studying the scriptures and teaching others, he understands that Jesus, his nephew who is to be born, is going to be the Most High and he is the Lord. He is the Most High. And he is the Lord. So he says, you child will be called the prophet of the most high. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. How many of you would rather be the headlining band than the opening band? Right? We all would, right? Because the opening band, you know, sounds not dialed in. Room's not great. They're not going to turn the smoke machine on. They're going to save all that for the headliner. But the, the opening band needs to get there to sort of prepare everybody. Okay, like get in the mood. Let's get going. And now the headliner, woo! You know, okay, yay. And then the opener walks off the stage. John the baptizer is the opening act. He's not the headliner. They're raising their son to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. And as soon as Jesus steps onto the stage, John steps off of the stage. He'll later say, he must increase, I must decrease. There's much humility in John. There's much humility in John, and there must be much humility that whatever we have, whatever we do, whatever we build, whatever we are, we have to say, it belongs to you, Lord Jesus, and I give it to you. And if I need to disappear so that you can be central, then that is what I will do. And that's what John does. To prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, that spiritual darkness and revelation from God and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, let me, let me address two things here, prophecy and the kingdom. It says at the very beginning that John, or excuse me, Zechariah was filled with the spirit and he prophesied. What is that? What is that? There's a lot of debate and confusion regarding this. And it is coming back to the character of God that first of all, God rules over the future. Okay? Some would say God knows the future. It's actually more than that. Right? God rules over the future. God doesn't know just what's going to happen. He's going to make sure that history ends the way he determines that it should. So God rules over the future. Secondarily, because he rules over the future, there are occasions which he reveals the future to us so we can plan for it and participate in it. So that's prophecy. Prophecy is the God who rules over the future, reveals it to us so we can plan for it and participate in it. Um, Some will then raise the question, does this mean that everything that happens is God's will? The answer is no. No. No that there are things that we do of our own choosing that are sinful and rebellious and they're apart from God's will. But what it does mean is that God rules over all history and brings history ultimately to fulfill his purposes and the destination for which he has appointed it. Let me give you a simple analogy um, 
If you've ever been on a large boat or a, a, a ship, imagine it this way. There are passengers on a ship and then there's the captain of the boat. Amen? And the captain determines where the boat goes. Now on the boat, the people will make lots of decisions about what they're going to say, what they're going to do, how they're going to behave. And they're responsible for all those decisions that they make. They may even decide, let's all get together and overthrow the captain and have a mutiny and an insurrection and see if we can't captain this ship because we don't like where it's going. But they don't and they can't. The captain maintains his position as the leader at the helm. Human history is like that. Human history is like a ship carrying all of humanity and we on the boat, we have decisions that we make, choices that we make that we are fully morally responsible for. But ultimately, we are not the captain of that ship. That ultimately, God rules the future and he will bring history into the port that he has determined it should go and we will make decisions along the way, but he is ultimately the one who decides the destiny. This is what prophecy is all about. God not only knows the future, he rules the future and he reveals the future so that his people who are on the proverbial boat participating in his kingdom could say, okay, this is where God is taking us. This is what God has revealed to us so that we can prepare for it and we can participate in it so that we can serve our captain as he brings human history into the port of its final destiny. Does that make sense? Makes sense. And so prophecy is common in the Bible. About 25% of the Bible at the time it was written was prophetic in nature. God who rules the future, revealing it to his people to prepare them to participate in the destiny that he has for them. Now, when this is in the Bible, it is altogether perfect. It is a word from God, is the word of God. And then God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, upon occasion will do something similar where he reveals the future to someone so that they can prepare for it and participate in it. It doesn't happen all the time. It's not something that we can make God do. It's also not something that rises to the level of Scripture, but we test it by Scripture. But ultimately what prophecy is, it's a word from God that is needed in a moment. I'll give you one example. Um, I believe God on occasion still does work this way, and it actually involves you all. So I was driving in praying for you and felt like I should share this story. So it was almost two years ago, we were living out of state, Grace and I and our five children, and it was a time of transition for us. And we were asking the Lord, where do you want us to go next? What do you want us to do? You know, we want to live in God's will, want to be obedient. But if you don't know what God wants you to do, it's hard to know what to do. And so we were praying and asking the Lord and seeking the Lord. And I was down at a conference in Florida with some pastor friends um, a large conference. I wasn't speaking out. I was just there to see my friends and to learn and to hang out with them. And uh, it was coming up on lunchtime and I, I felt like I needed to pray and process and journal and think some stuff through with the Lord. And so I left the conference a little early and I was going to take an extended lunch break and I was going to go to a coffee shop. So I put into my phone, you know, coffee shop and I drive there. There's no coffee shop. I don't know if it was closed or what. So I plugged in the directions again took me to the same spot, no coffee shop. So I'm totally lost. And I realized, boy, the clock is ticking. I'm running out of time. So I just need to find a place to, to be. So I'm driving away and I see a Mexican restaurant. So my, my loving encouragement to you is when all else fails, eat Mexican food. That's, that's just kind of my, that's kind of my default. I think in the, in the kingdom, it's going to be a lot of nachos. That's what I anticipate. So, um, and so I, I drove to the Mexican restaurant and I got out and I walked in and 
uh, the gal was there who was the host, and she said, uh, are you eating by yourself? I said, yeah, just a table for one. And I said, actually, I really need to use the restroom. I handed her my notebook. I said, could you just set this on the table and pick one, and I'll go wash up, and I'll be right there. She said, yeah. And so there's this guy over on the other side of the restaurant. His back is to me, and he turns around, and he looks at me. He said, are you Pastor Mark? I said, yeah. He said, I recognize your voice. Everyone does. I don't smoke, but it sounds like it. And... Uh, and he said, I, you know, I've listened to your sermons online. And I, he said, I've been praying for your family. I said, well, thank you. He said, what are you doing in Florida? Because he was from Florida. I said, well, I'm here for this conference. He said, I'm there too. But neither of us were speaking and we didn't know each other. So we had no idea that the other was there. We didn't, we didn't know that. And I said, thank you and said hi and went in, washed my hands. And I came out and he said, uh, he said, would you mind sitting down for a minute with me and some of the leaders from my church? I said, no, I'll do that. And so I sat down with him. He said, uh, no, he said, I've really been praying for you and your family. I've had a deep burden for you. I said, well, thank you. Very loving man. He said, uh, can I pray for you right now? I said, yeah, for sure. You could pray. That'd be great. So we bowed our heads at the table and he prayed and we opened our eyes and I thought we were done. And he said, uh, can I tell you something? I said, yeah. He said, you're going to think I'm crazy. I was like, well, then you totally got to tell me. Uh, <laughs> now I'm really curious. And I like the way he said it. He didn't say, the Lord says. He said, I feel like the Lord shared something with me and he wants me to share it with you, but you can confirm whether or not it's from the Lord. I said, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm good. He said, as we were praying, he said, I saw, I saw you and your family pack up all your things and move to a sunny place in the desert. And I saw that when you got there, that God was going to heal your family and provide for your family and let you start a ministry that'll be very healthy and flourish and it'll give you years of joy and lots of people will be loved. Amen. And he said, I, does, I know that sounds crazy. Does that sound familiar? I said, you know, it's really crazy. <laughs> I said, in a few hours, I've got a flight to Phoenix to meet with the pastors in the city to see if they think that it's God's will that we move there. And we're trying to figure out God's will for the next season of our life. And I said, so yeah, in a few hours, I'm going to get on a plane and go to Phoenix and meet with the pastors. And then Grace and the kids are going to fly in and we're going to pray about it as a family. And we're going to go looking at neighborhoods and see if the Lord is calling us to the desert for the next season of life and ministry. I said, so I don't think you're crazy. I, I think that's a word from the Lord. And got on the plane and the pastors said yes. And Grace and the kids showed up and here we are with you and we love you. And to me, it was a confirmation at a moment from somebody who was humble, somebody who was godly, somebody who loved the Lord, and somebody who wasn't saying, thus saith the Lord, but they're saying, I feel like the Lord wanted me to share this. And it was like, no, that was, that was a word from God. That's what prophecy is. Prophecy is a word from God that gives us clarity about God's will for our life. That's what it is. Because the God who rules the future reveals the future. So Zechariah prophesies over his son. And he prophesies about his son's participation in the kingdom of God. Okay? So this is a massively important issue that, that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a king. In eternity past, he ruled and reigned from a throne and he was worshipped by angels. For a short season, he humbled himself and came to the earth. You'll see this on your Christmas cards as Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the king comes into the world. 
that the kingdom comes with the king. Because all a kingdom is, a kingdom is wherever the king rules. And everything arises or falls with governance and leadership. When a government is broken in a nation, the people are not loved and cared for. When the governance is broken in a home, uh, the people are not loved and cared for. When the governance is broken in a church, the people are not loved and cared for. When a governance is broken in a business, the people are not loved and cared for. So you need two things. You need healthy governance and a loving leader. When there's healthy governance and a loving leader, then it creates a culture in which life flourishes and people are blessed. Part of our problem is that we don't have any understanding of what that might even be. I'm not going to get into politics, but I will say one thing we all agree on, we wish we had a different option, okay? And when it comes to the point of where we're even at politically, people are just like, I don't like this option or that option, so I'll take the lesser of two evils. That's not how the kingdom will be. The kingdom will have the Lord Jesus and he'll rule and reign. It'll have perfect governance with a loving leader and everybody will be blessed and everything will be better. And I promise you this, when Jesus returns and sets up his eternal throne from which to rule and reign, you and I will never wake up and say, man, I miss the elections. We'll never say that. (laughs) We'll never say that. We'll just say, yay, Lord Jesus, amen. And what he's talking about here is the king and the kingdom. And he has some markers of the kingdom and the kingdom. Number one, it's a kingdom with no sin. Uh, Zechariah prophesies the words holiness, righteousness, and the forgiveness of sins. Imagine a world in which there's no sin. We can't even imagine that, amen? You're like, I don't have anything to repent of, anything to apologize for, or anything to fix, because I didn't do anything wrong today, or yesterday, or the decade before that. That would be amazing. I don't have any guilt, condemnation, shame. I'm forgiven and I'm not doing those things anymore. And you know what? Everybody else is the same way. Nope, there's no more counselors and reconciliation and apologies and retractions and no sin. Just imagine a world with no sin. We long for that. And ultimately it's a hungry appetite for the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom will have no sin and none of the consequences of sin. He also talks about we'll have no enemies. He says we'll be, quote, safe for enemies and delivered from the hand of our enemies. Think of the enemies that you have. We have demonic enemies. There are unclean, unholy, unhelpful spiritual forces at work in the world that are seeking to destroy us, to harm us, to lie to us, to torment us, to distract us, to discourage us, to dissuade us. If you've ever tried to do that, which is right, you realize all of a sudden a tremendous headwind comes and it's really exhausting to try and make forward progress in the position of godliness because you have enemies, spiritual enemies that are literally at work trying to keep you from obeying God and doing that which is right. Imagine the day when all of that is gone. Satan and demons are gone forever and their work is gone. We can't even fathom of what that reality would be like. Then think of your physical enemies. Imagine there's no more global issues. There's just a kingdom, one king, one kingdom, no geopolitical conflict, no need for cops and soldiers. We love cops and soldiers. We love you, love you, love you. And we look forward to the day when you can retire because there won't be any more enemies to protect people from. What a crazy day it will be when you don't take the keys out of your car because nobody's going to steal it and there's no alarm on your house and there's no lock on the door and you can let your kids go play because nobody's going to hurt them and you don't have to have a password on your phone. (laughs) 
No enemies. No enemies. Nobody trying to steal from you, take from you, hurt you, harm you, betray you. None of that. He says that also this kingdom will be one without fear. He usually, literally uses this language, without fear and peace. Do you know how much fear grips our lives and it determines our decision making? Who's going to hurt me? How will I lose? How will I make it? I mean, you have financial fears, emotional fears, relational fears, physical fears. Am I going to get sick? Am I going to die? Am I going to get hurt? Am am I going to go bankrupt? Am I going to be betrayed? Am I going to be abandoned? So much of our life, it's like we're juggling grenades with the pins pulled. I'm afraid I can't drop any of these. If I do, my whole life blows up. And it leads to anxiety. It causes us to be stressed and depressed. Imagine waking up every day forever and ever and ever and ever and ever with no fear. No one to fear. Nothing to fear. All that burden and anxiety gone forever. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. He also says that the kingdom will be marked by no death. Talks about all our days and light in the shadow of death. No more sickness, no more disease, no more hospitals, no more emergencies, no more surgeries, no more chemo, just health and life forever. You and I need to understand that this world ends. And it ends when the king returns and the kingdom is fully unveiled. In the meantime, there are moments and occasions where the king and his kingdom are unveiled and they're revealed in this world to give us hope and longing, anticipation and preparation for our eternal citizenship in a great kingdom. I need you to know that this world is not your home. It's a place you're passing through as you head home. I need you to know, furthermore, that we are to live our lives kingdom down, not culture up. This is so incredibly important for us here at the Trinity Church. God, what are you like? Okay, I want to be like that. God, how do you treat people? Okay, that's how I want to treat them. God, what do you say is right and wrong? Okay, then that's how I want to live. God, when all of the shenanigans is over and everything is stripped and ripped from this world that is the result of Satan's sin, death, and hell, what will be standing and remaining forever? I want that to be my current reality as I prepare for eternity. Great problems happen in the church when people come in and they say, you know, here's what I see in culture. Here's what I see in politics. Here's what I see in business. Here's what I see in the culture. Therefore, our church needs to be relevant. I think that we don't make the kingdom of God relevant. I think we show the relevance of the kingdom of God. I I begin by assuming that what people need is a king and a kingdom. And our job is not to make the church so much like the world that people feel comfortable, but we make it so much like the kingdom that they feel uncomfortable in a hopeful way. Walking in and saying, these people love each other. These people forgive each other. These people care about each other. These people have this sense of identity that is unshakable. They have this sense of forgiveness and cleansing and hope and help and healing that is unimaginable. These people live in a reality that I don't have access to. They live in in a reality that I have no understanding of. 
That's because Jesus is our king and his kingdom is our reality. And we pray, thy kingdom come. And we want to live our lives kingdom down, not culture up. This is what the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be and supposed to be. It's supposed to be the beginning of the revealing of the kingdom of God on the earth. And there'll be a day, friends, when the church is no more and the kingdom is all that remains. And so the kingdom has to be the priority of the church. And the kingdom really is simply this. Who's the king? Who's the king? And our king is Jesus. Amen. And I want this to give you hope and clarity. I was with the family recently. Um, they, uh, they invited me into a sacred moment with their family at the hospital. Um, the mother and uh, matriarch in the family, godly woman, I think she was probably the first believer that she influenced her husband and her children toward the Lord. And now uh, she's a grandma and all the generations love and serve the Lord Jesus. And, and she's a, a great woman. So about a month ago, she was perfect picture of health, healthy lifestyle, walking with Jesus. Boom, cancer hits her fast growing, no cure. It literally encircles the heart and is killing her. And there's nothing they can do. And, and the family is just shot in the soul. There's mom and grandma. We're going from happy Thanksgiving to funeral Christmas. One month, the world turns upside down. And so they invited me around the bed, you know, to pray with her and to pray with them. It was a sacred moment. And, and they, they asked me, um, Pastor Mark, you know, what should we study? How do we get our minds around this? And what do we tell the grandchildren? I said, Study heaven. Tell them about the kingdom of God. And tell them not that grandma died, but that grandma moved. Not that grandma died. Grandma moved to the kingdom. And tell them about the king and tell them about the kingdom. So that the reality is not that they think that grandma died. Because the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Bible says that believers are not to grieve as those who have no hope. The Bible says that when we die, it's more like we're asleep. Okay? So they started asking questions about the kingdom of God. They're like, what will it be like? I said, no sin, no suffering, no sickness, no death. Nobody ever lies. Nobody steals anything. Nobody hates anybody. All the relationships are perfect. Everybody is loved. All the needs are met. I said, Grandma didn't die. She moved to the kingdom. And she'll miss you, but there will be a great homecoming and you'll see her again. And when you see her, she'll be healed and she'll be perfect. And the world in which you live together will be healed and perfect. And your relationship will be perfect. And there'll be a great homecoming for the children of God. You and I need to understand that the most important day of our life is the last day. And that every day needs to be lived preparing for the last day. And on the last day, we don't die. We pass from the world as we've known it, into the kingdom as he's made it. And, and sometimes kids will ask me, so can I ride my bike in heaven? Yeah, it's not a sin. It's all the good of this world magnified, all of the bad of this world altogether removed. I had a kid ask me once, can I swim in heaven? Yes. And, and you can play wiffle ball. Right? Because the kingdom of God is as the world when God was done making it before sin corrupted it. 
And so you look at Adam and Eve in the garden. They're built for adventure and culture and relationship and love and poetry and fun and eating and celebrating. And, and that's what the kingdom's all about. You and I need to define our reality forward, live it backward, have a vision of the king and the kingdom, and ask that we would be citizens of the king and the kingdom, and that we would live such a way that we're preparing ourselves for the coming of the king and the unveiling of his kingdom. And so what what Zechariah is doing over his son is he is prophesying his part to play in the preparing of the coming of the king. And you need to understand, if you are a Christian, our ministry is the same as John. We are to prepare people for the coming of our king and the unveiling of his kingdom. That was John's life ministry. That's our life ministry, is to prepare people for the coming of the king and the unveiling of his kingdom. It's this amazing prophetic word that God gives. Now, let me transition and ask you a question. It'll be a bit of a curious and odd question. And I'll just say this tangentially as well. How curious is it that this is the whole part of the story that's left out of the Christmas story and the telling in our culture? This is really important stuff. Oh, there's a king with a kingdom and you're born to prepare others for the king and the kingdom? Yeah. So let me ask you a a strange question. Apart from Jesus, preface, apart from Jesus, who would you say, if you got to cast one vote, let's say we collected all your votes today, who would you say is the greatest person who has lived in the history of the world? Okay, think about that for a moment. Who would you pick? See, every year, about this time, Time Magazine comes out with their person of the year. So in the past, it's been JFK, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., a couple of popes. One year, Hitler won it. Feels like we should definitely reconsider that. Um, But let's say it wasn't just person of the year. Let's say it was person of all years. The greatest person who's lived in the history of the world. Who would you write down as your vote? Here's what's interesting. Here's Jesus' vote. It's that John the baptizer is the greatest person who's lived in the history of the world. Here's here's John the baptizer. Before he was born, the angel Gabriel made this pronouncement. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. So maybe not everybody thinks you're great, but it's the Lord's opinion that really matters in the end. And there was a king at that time named Herod the Great. He wasn't so great. John was great. Jesus says later in Luke 7, 28, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, let me say that we can all vote, but it's ultimately Jesus' vote that really matters, right? That Jesus looks and he says, you know what? Of everyone who's ever walked the earth other than me, obviously Jesus is in a category in himself. The greatest person who's ever lived is my cousin, John. How many of you wouldn't have picked John? It's it's an amazing thing that Jesus picks John. And here's John's life. So the hand of the Lord is on him. He's raised by his parents and he's out in the wilderness and he kind of just goes off the grid. We don't know anything about him. He just sort of disappears until he shows up to preach again. Uh, We had our staff Bible study this week and one of the guys is like, he's kind of like Tarzan. He kind of is, right? Like it's a boy out in the woods and he shows up and wow, he's different, you know, but pretty powerful and exciting. That's the story of John. How long do you think his public ministry lasted? Six months. Six months. But he did everything that he was assigned and appointed to do. So he comes preaching, repent, repent, repent. And crowds gather around him. And he gets in fights with religious people because they show up to argue. 
right? But he, he's not going to have any of it. He calls them a brood of vipers, right? He, he, he really has a war with religious people. And he's trying to get people to prepare for the coming of, of Jesus, his cousin. He's baptizing people. And then ultimately Jesus comes along and he looks at Jesus and he says, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus says, no, we need to fulfill all righteousness. So baptize me. And then Jesus is baptized. The father speaks from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. There is the entire Trinity, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, John started handing his ministry to Jesus. He was the opening act to get everybody prepared. And then once Jesus shows up, he steps off and he says, he must increase, I must decrease. Jesus' early disciples, followers were largely converts of John. How many of you, you're in your early 30s, you just finally got your gig, you hit your slot, you're hitting your stride, you're trending on Twitter, you're all-time high popularity, the sky's the limit, you're like, I'm going to retire now because I need to hand all that to Jesus and I need to get out of the way because my whole job was to set him up for a win. Your whole job is to set Jesus up for a win. Your whole job is to set Jesus up for a win. John let go of everything that he had and he handed it to Jesus and he stepped away. And then he kept preaching repentance and Herod the king married a gal he wasn't supposed to marry. And rather than saying, well, I'm not gonna get involved, you know, who am I to judge? John said, I'll judge. So he did. And he, uh, he told Herod to repent and that he shouldn't have married this gal. And what Herod did is Herod had him beheaded. This is the only way to silence a true prophet of God to behead them and they behead John. And so then looking back, Jesus says, and John is the greatest among those who have been born of mere women. How many of you would like to know how to be great? Be honest. See, there's this false piety and humility that sometimes comes in the church like, I don't wanna be great. Sure you do. Let's just be great in the sight of God. Let's be great according to the estimation of the kingdom, not the culture. Because in the culture, you're great if you're famous or powerful or rich or beautiful. We don't have any indication that John had any of those things. He probably didn't look like a supermodel. He was really poor. Uh, He didn't have an institution or an organization that he oversaw. And quite frankly, a lot of people didn't like him. But he's the greatest, and he's greatest in the sight of God according to the standards of the kingdom of God. So I would like to redirect all cultural aspirations toward greatness and not say, don't seek to be great. No, seek to be great in the way that God defines and understands and reveals greatness. How many of you would like to be great? Raise your hand, okay? How many of your parents, you say, I'd like like Elizabeth and Zachariah to raise a kid that God said, great kid. How much do you like to raise a great kid? How do you do that? How did John become great? Well, firstly, he had spirit-filled parents. Spirit-filled parents. Uh, Luke 141, we read, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. His mom was spirit-filled. His mom was spirit-filled. Luke 167, Zechariah, his dad, was filled with the Holy Spirit. So his mom and dad were spirit-filled. Now, you can grow up to love and serve the Lord, but let me just say, it's a blessing and a benefit to a child if they have spirit-filled parents. How do you be a spirit-filled parent? What this means is that the third member of the Trinity, 
The person of God, the presence of God is at work in your life, causing you to become increasingly more like Jesus. You can't just look at Jesus and say, oh, I want to be like him. You can't be like him without the power of God. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to reveal to us Jesus and to reveal Jesus through us. So we understand who he is and we become like him by the power of God at work in our life. And let me just tangentially say something to parents because we've got a lot of young families. I like parenting books. I'm not against parenting books, but sometimes parenting books put a burden on parents that's not very helpful. And what the parenting books do, they try and reduce parenting to a paint-by-numbers kit or like assembling Ikea furniture, right? Just step one, step two, step three, step four, shazam, your kid's name is Billy Graham. You know, good, 1099, just, you know. And then you do step one, step two, step three, and your kid grows up and you're like, no, I, no, no, no. So I, I, it didn't work. Or the child doesn't respond the way that you were anticipating. Books, learning, experience, advice is all great, but parenting rises and falls with being filled with the Spirit. Because you don't know what's going on in the child's heart, but the Holy Spirit does. And you don't have access to the child's heart, but the Holy Spirit does. And sometimes you don't know what to do or say or not do or not say, but the Holy Spirit does. I'll give you an example. Any of you ever had a stubborn child? We've got five kids. Okay, we, we had a stubborn one. Okay, real, real, my offspring. Okay, not Grace's. My offspring. <laughs> the kid was little. And I remember I'd go down and I'd say, okay, look, buddy. Who am I? You're my dad. Who are you? You're my kid. How do I feel about you? You love me with all your heart. Okay, I do. Okay, you got two options. You can do what I say, or I'm going to have to discipline you, and then you're going to do what I say. <laughs> I got two options. This kid would look at me and say, you're going to need to discipline me. It's like, really? Really? I, I, I'm raising a terrorist, you know? I, I, And the kid would not respond. They would just get more defiant. I was like, this is a battle of the wills. And, you know, this is like a nuclear arms race. Like, it's going to be a mushroom cloud over the home. You know, we're not making progress. So I remember one day I was disciplining the child and trying to raise a child and love the child and help. And no progress. Couldn't figure out this kid. And finally, I just decided, you know what? I'm going to sick the Holy Spirit on him. So I pick the kid up, and I'm loving him, very affectionate. I'm a very affectionate dad. I'm not an angry dad, but I'm holding my kid, and my kid is assaulting me. You ever had a kid that assaulted you? Children are murderers that just lack the strength to execute their will, okay? Child is beating on me. I'm holding, uh, and I'm kissing the child and rubbing the child's back, and I started praying over the kid. I said, God, this is your kid. This is my kid. I love him. You love him. I don't know what's going on in their heart. Obviously, they're struggling. Lord, I don't want to be angry. I, I, don't, I don't want to escalate this. Holy Spirit, I'm inviting you into their heart. I'm inviting you to soften their heart. I'm inviting you to heal if there's a hurt there. And I just prayed. I prayed the Holy Spirit over my child. Eventually, the child stopped fighting, hugged me, looked at me, started crying, and said, Dad, I'm very sorry. The Holy Spirit is so, he is so helpful in every relationship, but especially the parenting relationship, okay? He knew my child. He had access to my child's 
heart. He changed my child's heart. Okay? How did John become great? Spirit-filled parents. Number two, spirit-filled son. Gabriel said, he will be filled with a Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Luke 166, we just read, the hand of the Lord is upon him. That's the Holy Spirit. Luke 180, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. He grew in his relationship with the Holy Spirit. He grew in his sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, his understanding of the presence of God in his life, hearing the voice of God, obeying God, learning the scriptures, understanding the word of God, living in obedience. You know why these go together? Let me tell you. The spirit of God brings the kingdom of God. The spirit of God brings the kingdom of God. The only place that the kingdom is seen is where the spirit is at work. So he's prophesying about the kingdom of God and then the kingdom of God actually appears because the spirit of God is at work in the midst of the lives of the people who are citizens of the kingdom of God. These two things go together. And for some of you, I need you to think and pray about this because maybe you've gotten some Bible teaching, but it's not been altogether clarifying. The spirit of God reveals to us the kingdom of God and brings to us the kingdom of God so that we start to live under the lordship of our king and our life begins to reflect and resemble our king and his kingdom lifestyle. And so this issue of the spirit and the kingdom, they go together. Now, some of you, this will... Some of you, you grew up in what maybe we'll call charismatic or Pentecostal churches. You're like, I understand this because I've experienced this. Some of you didn't. You're like, every time I've heard somebody say Holy Spirit, they were weird. And they said and did weird things. And is the Holy Spirit the weird member of the Trinity? Because if so, I'm a little uncomfortable with Father, Son, and weird. Holy weird. Okay. Let me tell you a little bit about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. First of all, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he is biblical, not bizarre. The Holy Spirit writes the scriptures through human authors, and therefore, when the Spirit works, he works in accordance with his word. So, so firstly, it means to be biblical. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is biblical. He's not bizarre. Sometimes people do bizarre things. They're like, that was the Holy Spirit. like... No, Jack, that was you. Because <laughs> I, I asked the Holy Spirit, and he's like, that one, I got nothing. I, wouldn't, I wasn't there, man. I was not there, right? Because um, sometimes people, they live their life like, well, I won't say that. It's hilarious, but I won't say it. The Holy Spirit just told me not to. But if you come up, I'll tell you later. Anyways, um, number two, the, the Holy Spirit, his work is orderly. It's not crazy. It's not crazy. So people, they're... They're, they're saying and doing like crazy, crazy. They're like, the Holy Spirit. Like, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit, he begins his ministry in Genesis where there's creation and he's hovering above creation. And he brings order out of the chaos. The Holy Spirit brings order out of chaos. He doesn't bring chaos. The Holy Spirit brings people together. He doesn't blow them apart. He brings things together. He doesn't blow them apart. This is why the Bible says that our God is not a God of disorder, but of order. Right, that the Holy Spirit is, is, is one who brings order, not disorder. Um, number three, that the Holy Spirit is humble. He's not haughty. He doesn't draw a lot of attention to himself. Some people come up and they say, I know a lot about God the Father because he's all over the Bible. And I know about Jesus because the spotlight is on him. But I don't know as much about the Holy Spirit. You know why? He's humble. He doesn't draw a lot of attention to himself. 
He's like, hey, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to love Jesus. I want you to serve Jesus. I want you to follow Jesus. I want you to belong to Jesus. And so he focuses your eyes on Jesus and he doesn't focus your eyes on him because he's humble. He's not haughty. Where you see arrogance and pride, that's not the work of the spirit. And, and, and number four, the Holy Spirit, he is healthy, not unhealthy. The fruit of the spirit is love. The Holy Spirit brings healing to your hurts and he brings health to your emotional life so that you can love people and forgive people and and let grudges and burdens go and you can have hope for people and you can care for people and you can see people in light of kingdom citizenship and, and, and all of a sudden you become a person who has a kingdom heart and a kingdom mind and you want to live a kingdom life and, and I'll tell you what, the kingdom of God is a healthy place with healthy people who have healthy emotional lives and healthy relationships. And so the Holy Spirit brings healing and he brings health. Now we see all of this in the Lord Jesus' life. The Lord Jesus, we're told in Luke's gospel elsewhere, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Jesus' life is biblical, it's orderly, it's humble, and it's healthy. And that's what a Spirit-filled life is. That's what a Spirit-filled life is. If I could say it this way, and I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of out of time, There's a lot more that could be said, maybe someday. The Holy Spirit provides the life-giving presence of the kingdom of God. I was talking to a a pastor recently, and he said, said that the churches that grow are life-giving places. Well, there's no way to be life-giving apart from the kingdom and the Spirit. So my hope and my heart for us is that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit like Zechariah was, like Elizabeth was, like John was, like Jesus was. That we would experience the kingdom of God in our life and that we would find the presence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the kingdom of God to be very life-giving, to be healing, to be hopeful, to be joyful, to be helpful. And then as other people encounter us, they sense something of the presence of the Spirit and the presence of the kingdom, and they're, they're drawn to that place of health and love. There is no health, there is no love, there is no life apart from the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God. It's the one thing that everyone in our culture longs for and they can't find. And it's the one thing that we as the Church of Jesus Christ have the great honor of enjoying and inviting others to enjoy. Amen? Okay. Father God, I thank you for an opportunity to teach your word today. Um, Lord God, it's a life-giving word. It's the word that the Holy Spirit is inspired to be written. Holy Spirit, would you please take your word and apply it to the lives of your people? Holy Spirit, please allow us as a people, individually and collectively, to be filled with your presence and your power. May your presence heal us. May your power change us. May we have lives that increasingly look like citizens of the kingdom and not residents of the culture. Lord, we live in a broken, hurting, self-inflicting, wounded culture that needs the presence of our King Jesus and the coming of his great kingdom. Lord Jesus, we look forward to the day that you get off of your throne and you re-enter into human history and that you come to bring your kingdom and that that would be our resurrection reality forever. In the meantime, let us enjoy your presence. Let us be your people. Let us live every day preparing for the last day, the day that we move to the kingdom. 
And Lord God, I pray for my friends that, that they right now would sense your presence, that they would sense your power, that Holy Spirit, you would fill their hearts and their minds and their voices and their lives with hope and with love and with joy. And Lord, as we come to worship you and to sing of your praises, to bless you as Zechariah did, please send the Spirit so that we can enjoy your presence and that we could practice for your kingdom as your people in Jesus' name. Amen.